Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin with the State of the Union here in the United States. The president calling for bipartisanship in his address on his terms, making another push to build a border wall, declaring that it will get built. The lawless state of our southern border is a threat to the safety, security, and financial well-being of all America. We have a moral duty to create an immigration system that protects the lives and jobs of our citizens. This includes our obligation to the millions of immigrants living here today who followed the rules and respected our laws. In the past, most of the people in this room voted for a wall, but the proper wall never got built. I will get it built. The president of the United States urging that he will get it built, calling for compromise, but offering Democrats very little in exchange for backing that project. Kevin Cerilli joining us now, Bloomberg Chief Washington TV and radio correspondent. Always great to catch up with you, Kevin. Walk me through how this is playing out in Washington this morning. Along party lines. Uh, and, and I think, you know, yesterday I, I, or last night after the speech, I interviewed Senator Chris Coons, a key Democrat, uh, within the intelligence community and on foreign policy. Uh, and he said that, you know, that Democrats were skeptical heading into the speech, and they heard a couple of areas where they would like to hear more from the president, get more details, whether it's on uh, trade policy, specifically with the congressional push that the president asked for in terms of advancing legislation that would make it more difficult for lawmakers, or I'm sorry, for other countries, rather, to, to raise tariffs on issues like combating childhood cancer, uh, as well as on infrastructure. But I don't think there's anyone who really thinks that in the next 10 to 12 months there's going to be a major economic stimulus bill that advances out of a divided Congress. So I, I think the 30,000-foot view, Jonathan, is that, one, this was largely expected, the type of speech that we got last night. But, two, I'm not sure it does anything in the immediate short term to change the negotiations on uh, Congress to avert another shutdown. Now, if he would have declared a national emergency, that would have poured gasoline on the political fire. He did not. Uh, and I think the, the, the takeaway is he's relying on, on Republican leadership like McConnell yeah. to get this over the finish line. Hey, Kevin, for those that are assuming that he won't, he won't declare a national emergency because if he was going to, he would have done it by now. Do you think that's mm -hmm. a mistake to think that way? Absolutely a huge mistake. Uh, I, I spoke with senior administration officials on Friday heading into the speech, and I spoke with Sean Spicer yesterday, uh, who helps the president craft the speech. And, you know, we in the media have, have kind of, I think, misrepresented this, this choice because we're saying if he gets the money from Congress, it's an either or. Get the money from Congress or declare a national emergency. He could do both. He could do both. He could do both. Let me how many I don't I, I want to reiterate that because he could get the money from Congress and then yeah. say, OK, I want even more money. I'm going to declare a national emergency. Let's see how much more money we can get out of it. Hey, Kevin, <laughs> great to catch up with you. Bloomberg Chief Washington Correspondent. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Kevin Cirilli uh, with the State of the Union Address.
What we've been doing is we've been speaking to a set of Republicans nationwide, frankly, more in the South, about what they see from their president. It's clearly a launch of the 2020 campaign. Chuck Fleischman is a congressman from Chattanooga all the way up to Oak Ridge. Uh, Frankly, Chuck, where my parents were uh, in the early, early days of their marriage at the Oak Ridge Research Lab. And we welcome you on Bloomberg Surveillance this morning. Well, thank you. You're a man after my heart. Oak Ridge, Tennessee is the birthplace of the Manhattan Project. And it's right now the site of, I believe, the best national lab in the country. And we're building a brand new uranium processing facility. And Perhaps what I'm most proud well, of is we lead uh, legacy cleanup there. Congressman, this is, how, this is how Tom softens up the guests. You no, know, before every, I every crush him. Oh. Comes on. <laughs> what, what interests me, Chuck, and it's a hugely Republican district, and your Republican primary when you won by like 1,400 votes was really the election. I get that. But what is fascinating to me is how the, the debate has shifted in four weeks, maybe six weeks, and the debate has shifted last night to what Kevin Cirilli talked about earlier this morning and Mike Allen at Axios which is the new word of the campaign, which is socialist. How does it play in your district when the president of the United States calls a new Democrat theology, not progressive, not liberal, but socialist? Great question. First of all, my very first race in 2010, I did win with 1,415 votes, but the last two times I've had 80% of the vote in the Republican primary, and that, of course, is the race. A Democrat cannot win in the 3rd District of Yeah, but Congressman, comment, the only Democrats in your district root for Vanderbilt. Okay, let's make that clear. Okay, continue. And and most of those folks vote for me. They've got it. The mayor of Oak Ridge is is a liberal Democrat, and he campaigns for me. But to answer your question, uh, Donald Trump is exceedingly popular in the 3rd District of Tennessee. I allude to the most recent Senate race when uh, I brought the president and the vice president into Chattanooga. That's my big city in the district and really drove the vote so high. Marsha Blackburn won that race. Uh, The message is, in my part of the world, overwhelmingly conservative, overwhelmingly pro-Trump. This is important. You didn't answer my question. The new word is socialist. How does that play in your district? Oh, it's poison. Socialism is poison in my district, and actually I think it's poison in most parts of the United States. But uh, uh, socialism is a dirty word in the 3rd District of Tennessee. Congressman, how do you draw the distinction between progressive policies and socialism? Quite clearly, the Democrats aren't going to use the word socialism because they know the word is poison around much of the country. How are you going to push through the idea that, that the idea that progressive politics is no different to socialism? Because if you look at the political spectrum, what has basically happened, I do believe most Democrats used to be liberal or closer to the center. The Democratic Party has moved much further to the left on the social scene, on the economic scene. If you look at where they have taken their party, when they talk about redistribution of wealth, when they talk about government control of everything from health care to every facet of your life – It will scare mainstream America, not just the good, hardcore conservatives in the third district of Tennessee. But um, when 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 my mother, who was a New Deal Democrat, my father was an Eisenhower Republican, uh, grew up in New York. And and basically we would talk about things. The values that my mother as a New Deal Democrat gave me were patriotism, um, 
belief in God and country. The Democrats today have gone the other way. I don't understand them, candidly. Uh, I have a lot of friends who are Democrats, but I still don't understand that. And there are a lot of Democrats who lament the fact that their party has been jettisoned to the left. And I think they will have to come back to the center. Uh, I'm a center-right Republican. I'm not Mm -hmm. a far-right Republican. uh, But uh, I think the American people will put a check on either party if it goes to extreme either way. Congressman, thank you so much. The gentleman from Tennessee, from Chattanooga, thank Chuck Fleischman with us uh, uh, this morning or after his president gave a State of the Union. We are advantaged at Bloomberg Surveillance with good conversations on this nation's international relations and foreign policy. We particularly thank Ambassador Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations for joining yesterday with his definitive knowledge on Northern Ireland. We continue that conversation. Stavidis is the Admiral from the U.S. Naval Academy, formerly uh, with NATO, formerly with Tufts Fletcher School. Good morning, 1061 FM Boston, and now uh, has a shingle out of the Carlisle Group as well. Amos Davidis, we got a two-hour conversation here. We got to squeeze in. The president, once again, within what I will editorialize, were gross insecurities, went after John McCain yesterday, saying his New York Times bestseller book was, I can't remember the exact language, a bomb, etc. Review McCain's book and what was the lesson in it that would have put it in your classic, The Leader's Bookshelf. It was a superb book, and it it was the culmination of everything that John McCain put into his life. It's a book about ethics and character and about sailing true north in your life. And it was a bestseller, and the president denigrated it and said the book uh, was a a failure. It was anything but a failure. It's a must-read. The big lesson is, at the end of the day, all leadership devolves from your character, what you do when you think no one is looking. John McCain understood that. It's a superb book. I want to go through the litany of things. We must start with North Korea. A second meeting. Let's review, Admiral. What did we learn from the first meeting of North Korea and the United States leadership? Uh, Point one, that Kim is willing to come to the table. Point two is that Kim is a slippery negotiator who is not giving us much so far. And point three is that if we are going to land this thing diplomatically, Tom, uh, we're going to have to establish a concrete series of steps, list of weapons, location of weapons. What are the developmental programs before we raise uh, sanctions, before we lift sanctions? Uh, we've got to see concrete action. That's going to be the focus of this meeting in in uh, Vietnam coming up fairly soon. What is the symbolism of Vietnam? You had the courage to join the Navy in 1975-ish, which was a time where no one did that. I think it was you and six other lonely souls. <laughs> Take us back to Vietnam. What is the symbolism of the President of the United States traveling to Vietnam? It's powerful, and I hope that Uh, The president will go to the Hanoi Hilton, which I have done, and see John McCain's cell there, Tom. Um, It's a lesson about our failure in that war, let's be honest and clear, but also of redemption and hope as we have managed to pull Vietnam 
more and more toward the West and engage with them. So it's a powerfully symbolic trip for President Trump. I think it's an ideal location, also because North Korea's uh, airplanes can't fly very far. So it's a a good place for Kim as well. Always the Admiral moving the dialogue forward. Let us talk of NATO. Mr. Stoltenberg, we visited with in Davos. He was forceful about the future of NATO. They will meet in London in December. The president scheduled to attend. What is the U.S. policy you see right now of James Trevitas's NATO? Uh, you know, in my days, four years as Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, I pressed the allies to spend more on defense. Uh, president Trump, uh, let's be fair, has done that quite effectively and added uh, tens of billions of dollars to the NATO budget by doing so. On the other hand, uh, he needs to be forceful and positive in his leadership of this alliance, which is uh, firing on all cylinders against Russia in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, on counter-piracy missions. This alliance is very valuable to the United States. We need to push them, but we also need to embrace them. I hope the president does both those things when he goes to the summit in London in December. Tom. Jo- joining us uh, worldwide, James Stavidis with Carlisle Group, of course, the former uh, dean of the Fletcher School, Tufts University, and a, a tour of duty are a few with the United States Navy as well. Can you give us a mark of Mr. Pompeo? I mean, there's been a shift here. Tell us mm-hmm. Pompeo. Has there, been a, has there actually been an adjustment in the foreign policy of this administration, or is it smoke and mirrors? No, I think there has been an adjustment in two important ways. One is that Secretary Pompeo has exercised positive leadership in Foggy Bottom. He's motivated his diplomats. There is much more confidence coming out from the State Department than was the case under Rex Tillerson. So there's an upgrade on leadership. In terms of policy, I see Secretary Pompeo, because he is close to the president, he's able to take Donald Trump's impulses and move them into real policy. So, uh, again, back to the two things we just discussed, will he be able to move the president to press on Kim to get Mm -hmm. concrete outcomes? And will he be able to both embrace and push NATO? I think Pompeo is an upgrade in in those two ways, Tom. I want to go back to your wonderful book, folks. James Trevitas, not only with a wonderful book on the oceans, but is the leader's bookshelf, which I mentioned at the top with Senator McCain, uh, is a spectacular book. Not only chapter four, team of, book number four, I should say, team of rivals. Obviously, Doris Kearns Goodwin on Lincoln, the face of battle, the John Keegan study of three different battles and on and on. I'm going to pick a book I haven't read, uh, Admiral, and this would be on the gentleman from Hawaii, Mr. Nimitz, who kept it together with Spruance in World War II. E.B. Potter's Nimitz. Why is that a book Americans need to be familiar with? First, because it unpackages Uh, Chester Nimitz, who took command of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, Tom, as the battleships were sinking in front of him, as there was cordite hanging in the air at Pearl Harbor. So it's a book about resilience. Secondly, Nimitz was calm. He never lost his temper. He never denigrated uh, those he supervised and led. He was the consummate, quiet warrior. And thirdly, because he truly understood the geopolitics of Asia. He he worked from knowledge, understood politics, and then applied it to war fighting. That's a pretty good model with a ton of lessons for any of us today. Our national debate, Admiral, is immigration. 
Book number 38, Buffalo Soldiers, A Narrative of the Black Cavalry in the West, William Leckie. I've seen that monument outside the Thayer Hotel at West Point of where they used to actually practice on the field as they got ready. But that speaks to the diversity of the American community and goes back you know, into the 19th century as well. Why do we need to read Buffalo Soldiers? And what does that say about your Navy in 2022? We need to read Buffalo Soldiers to understand one stream of the power of the diversity of this nation. And, of course, it's not just our African-Americans. It's our Asian-Americans. It's the rise of Latinos in this century. Um, We bring all of the races together, Tom, and we stand together in defense of the country. Um, That is a crucial aspect of all this, and it brings us to immigration. We ought to continue to support immigration. So many, and and I'll point to the U.S. Navy, we lost 17 sailors in collisions at sea, a terrible day for the Navy. Of those 17 sailors, Tom, uh, eight of them were born in another country. Um, Immigration helps us. Those who come here sacrifice for us. That slipstream of diversity is well illustrated by the book Buffalo Soldiers. James Tribune, thank you so much again, folks. The Leaders Bookshelf, I put it out on Twitter. All I can say is own it and dip into it for your next uh, read. Mr. Stavitas, Admiral Stavitas, I should say, is with Carlisle uh, Group. Julia Coronado with us with Macro Policy Advisors. Julia, you mentioned earlier this morning the Coronado collar. (laughs) We all know the Powell put, which is where he says different things, and that puts a limit to how far down the market can go or it makes yields move. What's the Coronado collar? Well, so um, I have thought about the central banks, actually since Yellen came in as Fed chair, uh, of the uh, central bank reaction function as more of a collar than a put because – They do understand that policy works first and foremost through financial conditions, and they don't want to see them get sort of dangerously frothy, frothy in a way that a correction could really damage the economy. So last year, when we were sort of firing on all cylinders, both in the economy and markets, the fact that markets were getting to a place where they described the risks coming from them as elevated they were more willing to add a hike into the baseline, more willing, more biased to tighten policy. Markets correct, uh, and then that goes away, and they're more biased towards being neutral or potentially easing. So, so they do use financial conditions and asset yeah. prices to calibrate policy. Can we talk about where the strike price is <laughs> uh, for the Federal Reserve? I, I don't expect a target on the S&P 500, Julia, but I want a better idea of, of what would bring the Federal Reserve back in. How loose do financial conditions need to be? So, I mean, obviously, the the financial conditions are also reflective of the economy. So it's not like it's just a pure strike price. It's about like if if we actually we're we're all expecting a pretty pronounced slowdown this year. We're seeing it globally. We expect some of it to wash into the United States. Some people have recession calls either this year or next year. And so the question is, to what extent do we see that slowing down if instead for example, we see China put in a big stimulus, Europe stabilize, pick up, and the and the environment gets much more. There's a relief, 
there's more growth, there's more inflation pressures, uh, then you could see, and markets start rallying on that, then you could see the Fed come in and say, yeah, actually, we do need to get another hike in there. But I think it would be a combination of market risk on pushing back towards those zones that the Fed doesn't see as sustainable over the long run, yeah. and the economy doing better than expected. Well, we're going to hear from the chairman a little bit later today, this evening in Washington, yeah. D.C. I believe he speaks at about 7 p.m. Eastern time. I did time. not know that. It's, it's not yeah. on monetary policy. But first. it's not on monetary policy. First, I think it's first, at an education First summit. public remarks since the uh, dinner with the president, though. Yeah. What do you want to hear from him, Julia, that you haven't heard already? So I think that with the dinner with the president, they managed that as well as they possibly could. He, But first of all, Chair Powell made sure that he had Vice Chair Clarida with him. Never go into a room alone. Uh, and so he, uh, he, he had that sort of united front, and then they released a statement immediately after that dinner. So I think that he's trying to manage, I think Powell's been very clear about the political independence of the Fed and his commitment to doing the right thing. Um, I don't see the market as really questioning that right now, Yeah. Uh, but, but it's obviously we're in uncharted territory with political pressures right now. Um, but what do I want to hear from Chair Powell? I think we're, we've heard the story. They're neutral. The, the Fed has moved to the sidelines. They need to see something in one direction or another to make them change the policy stance. And I think near term, we're looking for a balance sheet recalibration. Is there a real yield on where yields are right now? If you take these yields and you take out inflation, yeah. is the real yield there? Or there is, is it a little. Invisible? We're in positive real yield territory. Um, Barely, but we, we did move into positive real yield territory. And I think we saw the effects on interest sensitive sectors. You know, I, we don't know what the neutral rate is. We're, we're feeling our way to that neutral rate. But boy, did, did, did uh, real estate and interest sensitive sectors well, flatten think, out. Julia, last this year. has been a big topic of debate on this program it, that we could be at neutral yeah. with a very slightly positive Real rate Fed yeah. funds yes. rate. Yes. What does that say about how much the economy has changed in it's the last 10 years? Oh, it's dramatically. Artificial. But it's artificial. I don't know. I think that maybe what we're seeing is a, a, a globally aging economy that works differently than it worked in the past. Okay, so one day a million years ago, Bill Gross said to me, you ought to buy Procter & Gamble and grab the dividend. And that made worldwide headlines. Is that okay. where we are? Is the real yield is dividend growth on blue chip stocks? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that is where we are, basically. I think okay. we're, we're in a slow, I don't think you can, you can deny that we're in a slower global growth okay. potential environment. And in that environment, you know, the, the right. rates are lower and, and yields, you know, risk, risk return is going to be somewhat lower. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Julia, none of this matters all in my, my agreement with Bloomberg. I have to say the real yield on Wednesday, like eight times to promote the real yield with John Farrell on Friday at 1 PM. 1 PM. On it's the real TV. yield. It's it, not it artificial. What's you. your angle this week? Have you decided who your guests we, are? We haven't decided just yet. What the angle mm -hmm. is. It's Wednesday, still early in the week. It's still early in the we'll week. We'll work this out by tomorrow afternoon. Or maybe by 11 a.m. <laughs> or, or, or Friday morning at 11 a.m. <laughs> John Farrell, the real yet. Actually, it's very valuable here on the Dynamics. We see Julia Coronado. Thanks, Love Julia. it. Great. Thank, Thank you. you so much, particularly seriously on the Coronado collar. It's a really important uh, concept for the Fed view going forward. So, Tom, of course, as we've been talking about this morning, uh, President Trump delivered the State of the Union address last evening. 
likely characterized as light on policy proposals, perhaps, and specifics, but certainly heavy on anti-immigration and pro-life rhetoric. Joining us to kind of Mm. break it down is Cheryl Boland. She is Bloomberg Government White House reporter on the phone with us. Cheryl, thanks so much for joining us. Again, a little bit light on specifics, I think, is some of the feedback we've been seeing. What did you take away from the speech, and do you believe the speech had any opportunity to move the needle one way or the other for the administration? Well, there are certainly plenty of opportunity to move the needle. Now, whether it did is a big question, and I think it probably did not. Um, It was a real study in contrast. Um, the president went in talking about uh, bipartisanship and compromise, but then continued to sort of backtrack on that. And particularly, um, the president called uh, for Democrats to come to a compromise on immigration, but he offered no movement forward that Democrats could accept to break the impasse on border wall funding. Um, he called for, uh, you know, very popular uh, increase in, in immigration, excuse me, in uh, infrastructure funding, uh, rebuilding the nation's infrastructure but then absolutely no specifics on how to pay for it, which was a big problem last year. He also called for a big infrastructure package, but they could never come to an agreement on paying for it. Uh, he talked about uh, coming, working on a new trade deal with China, but then was really uh, he really bragged about his 250 billion in tariffs. Um, so, Cheryl, he, I think one of the key, the key things, you know, arguably we're, we're approaching that February 15th deadline and the, the shutdown is coming again. Unfortunately, we have to turn our, the narrative back to the shutdown. Was there anything right. either in the president's speech or in the Democratic response that sheds any light on how they might move forward? No. And in fact, notably, the president did not refer to the previous shutdown, which is something that Stacey Abrams, who gave the uh, Democratic response. How'd she do? Cheryl, how'd she do? Give give me a Stacey Abrams scorecard. (laughs) Well, she talked about she opened up with furloughed workers. She she again contrasting the Democratic vision with with the Republican guns, uh, college costs. Um, healthcare costs and also pro-choice. So, so abortion was a was an issue of the night. Yeah. Um, but she she did fine. Um, it's always hard to give the Democratic response, um, but she certainly didn't make any missteps no. and 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 did and did as well as she could. I the, believe the Washington scorecard. Cheryl Boland, thank you so much, the Bloomberg government. Greatly appreciate that uh, this morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.